And so while y'all are turning to Psalm 24, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as, as Luana led us in worship and, and, and said, when, you know, when we're having a tough time and we're dealing with things, we can just lay it down and we can still praise you, Father. And we can do the same thing when we come to your word. Lord, we pray that you would remove those distractions from us, those things, so that you can impart your truth and your word into us, that it would help us to navigate this life in honor of you. Father, I pray that tonight you would teach us something new, something fresh, or remind us of something about worship, Father. That you would teach us to worship you and and glorify you because you deserve it and because we want to. Lord, we thank you for all that you are. Help us to see you as you are, as the King of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have another short psalm before us this evening. Oh, man. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. It's not working. I got to get through all of these. There we go. Boom. All right. (laughs) The title of the message tonight is Worshiping the King of Glory. We have a short psalm before us, Psalm 24. It's only 10 verses long. But it's another psalm, and it's simply titled, A Psalm of David. Now, most commentators and and most Bible scholars, they put the writing of this psalm around the time when David brought the Ark of the Covenant and entered into Jerusalem as he brought it down from Obed-Edom. And uh, it was during the reign of David, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But I like what Spurgeon aptly commented. He said, the eye of the psalmist looked beyond the typical upgoing of the ark to the sublime ascension of the king of glory. Psalm 22, if you remember from Good Friday, showed us the suffering of the good shepherd. In Psalm 23 last week, we saw the depth of his care for us as his sheep. And Psalm 24 is what I would call the bookend of those trilogy psalms. They all three go together and they all depict... Um, something about our great God. And it's this psalm that depicts his return to rule as king. And so we get a picture. We get where he goes from the cross to the shepherd's crook and finally to the crown. Jesus, the good shepherd who died for us, then he cares for us, and we look forward now to his coming back for us. So in this psalm, David is extolling and exalting God as the king of glory. The procession for the ark, it would have been accompanied with much music, a lot of singing. There would have been much celebration about the ark of the covenant coming back to Jerusalem. In this psalm, what it it is for us, what I want us to see it as, and what I believe the Lord was speaking to me, was it's about worshiping and inviting the king to come in. So as they sang to invite and welcome the king into Jerusalem, we can learn to sing and welcome the king of glory into our life also. Starting in verse 1, it says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belongs to the Lord. 
For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Salah. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. The king of, then the king of glory will come in. And who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. Salah. When we sat down to worship God, we may have in our minds, why do we worship God? I don't feel like worshiping God. I'm having a bad day today. I'm having a bad time this week. I'm, I'm in, a, in a funk. I have this dark cloud over me. Why would I worship God? And we ha- it's because we have this wrong idea about worship. We think that worship is something for us. When worship is something we give to God. And worship begins when we recognize God's sovereign position. In the first two verses, David writes, he says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on rivers. He's saying the earth... And everything in it, and I've heard one of my favorite Bible teachers, just super interesting to listen to, his name's Gail Irwin. And he'll say, he he takes that and he says, if you give it everything, what's left after everything? Nothing. So everything in the world and all of its inhabitants belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. We all will give an account to the Lord. The birds of the sky belong to the Lord. The oceans belong to the Lord. All of it belongs to the Lord. In fact, Paul quotes this line in his letter to the Corinthians to establish the principle that in fact, there is nothing that belongs to false gods. And idols and and the pagans who made offerings to them, nothing belongs to them. He he was setting it aside so that they knew that they could eat the meat that was technically offered to idols. He's like, "It's, it's being offered to nothing. And he's making that point because everything truly belongs to the Lord. The world and its inhabitants, every single person, all of the days on the calendar belong to the Lord. All of the food that is in this world, all of it, God has claim on all of it, including every person who's ever lived. Why does all of it belong to the Lord? Verse 2 tells us, He laid its foundations on the sea and established it on rivers. We recognize the truth of this because when we create something, it belongs to us, right? We try to protect it. We put patents on it. We trademark it. We do whatever we can to say, I made this. You're not going to steal it from me because it belongs to us. We don't get mad at somebody when they make a painting 
And then they set it on fire in their own house in the safe fireplace. It's a safe controlled fire. We don't get mad at them for that because it's theirs. We may think, what a waste, but it's theirs to do with what they want, right? We recognize the truth of this. You, when you make something, it's yours. It belongs to you. You can do with it as you wish. And we recognize this truth now because this has been true since the beginning, before God created. Because God created, he owns it. That was a truth that was established back when he created. God created everything, and so everything he created belongs to him. And we know he created everything. John 1, 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. It's just a very fancy philosophical way to say he made everything And there's nothing that's made that he didn't make. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, the thrones, the dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. And the psalmist in 104 verse 5, he says, He established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. And Proverbs 8.29 reminds us, he's the one that's in control. When he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command when he laid out the foundations of the earth. There was a song that was very popular on the radio so long ago, I don't even remember the name of it, but it basically goes, who told the waters they can only come so far? But the truth is, is how you view God's sovereign position determines how you worship him. A low view of God doesn't worship him. The higher the view of God, the greater, the deeper, the more passionate the worship. Take, for example, I came across two different views on our universe and our planet. And and you can tell the person's heart just by what they say about it. The first one says the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We're so insignificant, I cannot believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. Or, of all the heavenly bodies created by the Lord... The earth is the one he has chosen to be his own special sphere of activity. Clarence Benson called the earth the theater of the universe. For on it, the Lord demonstrated his love in what Dorothy Sayers called the greatest drama ever staged. He chose a planet, a people, a land, and there he sent his son to live, to minister, to die, and to be raised from the dead that lost sinners might be saved. The earth is God's. Everything on it and in it is God's. And all the people on the earth are God's, made in his image and accountable to him. The first quote is from author, atheist, Stephen Hawking. The second quote is from the late pastor, Warren Wiersbe. The one who recognizes God's sovereign position recognizes the blessed position they themselves share. See, God said in Exodus 19.5, Now if you'll carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, 
You will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. That verse came right before what he said in Exodus 19.6, oddly enough, chronologically speaking. It says, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Do you see what God is doing there? He says, you're mine, I own you, but I'm going to elevate you. You're going to be mine, but I'm going to make you rulers. I'm going to make you kings. I'm going to make you my holy nation. It's, it's his. As creator, he's sovereign in it all. But in his sovereign choice, he's chosen to share it with us in his goodness. He sovereignly possesses absolutely all of it. We're guests on his planet. And he made us stewards of all that he's given us for our enjoyment. We praise and worship the Lord because everything we see belongs to the Lord. He created it and he's sovereign over all of it. So as we worship him, we're worshiping one who is worthy of worship. It's a silly thing to worship something that has no, that has no value to be worshiped. But it's proper when you worship that which deserves worship. And God deserves our worship. And as we worship God, what we're reminded of is God's requirements. David asked a couple of questions in this psalm. In verse 3, he says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And then he answers those questions. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Salah. David goes right from recognizing God as creator and sovereign and owning everything to acknowledging such an awesome and sovereign God cannot be approached lightly. Who can ascend to him? Who can be in his presence? Such a great, awesome, almighty God who's able to be in the presence of him, who has the right, who has the ability who has the permission to come before God. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our salvation that we forget what it takes to be in the presence of the Lord. And we start to think back along the worldly terms of it. We start to think, because here on earth, right, to be in the presence of a celebrity, to be in the presence of a nation's leader, to be in the presence of even city or or state leaders. You have to be someone who's important or perceived as such. You have to have a certain amount of money or power in order to have the audience of powerful men. Influence and ability to give and return favors, that's what's required by men. But what does God require to stand in His presence? Who can be in the presence of God? 
See, there was a time when people were more concerned with the answer to that question than they are today. Especially in the time that we find the times we find ourselves in now. See, the question, the most important question used to be, what is required to be right with God? And to be able to stand before him in presence. Nowadays, the only time people seek God is when they say, What is God going to give me to be happy? And we have to remember, not just anyone can stand before God. There are requirements given for the one who is able to have the presence of the Lord God. He gave four of them. The one who has clean hands. Clean hands means more than just having good hygiene. It's, it's more than just the 20 seconds of washing and, and seeing that song that we learned a couple years ago. Clean hands speaks more than merely just washing your hands in water. Because Pontius Pilate himself washed his hands, but they remained unclean. You see, clean hands speaks of right actions. God will not be in the presence of one whose actions are unholy. And the way that you can tell if your actions are unholy or not is are you one who has a pure heart? Clean hands must be joined with a pure heart. Because actions are a good beginning. Actions are, the, are, are a great start. But in order to keep clean hands, you have to maintain a pure heart. And Jesus spoke towards this. As hard as it was to keep from committing the sins, Jesus taught that there's even a higher requirement in the sins. He says, you have heard it said in Matthew 5.21, he says, you have heard it said... To our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. The heart matters. Because he also said in Matthew 15, 19, For the, from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. But he also said in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, the pure in heart have presence before the Lord. Number three is the one who does not appeal to what is false. To appeal to what is false is to call upon, to trust in, or to seek anything that's not the Lord. Idols. All idols are false. There's only one true and living God. He's the one who created everything. He's the sovereign one. He's the only one. Psalm 31.6, the psalmist says, I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. 
And there, there, there's a time where God even spoke out on this. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of his upstairs room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? God is saying, what are you doing? Going to a false God. Don't you know that there is a God? That's why God, He takes it personal. When we trust in something other than Him because we're trusting in nothing. We're choosing to trust nothing over trusting the living God. He's a jealous God. Jealous for what is true. He shares His glory with no one. Let alone with anything that's false. And number four, the one who has not sworn deceitfully. You see, the words we speak are an indication of the state of our heart. Our inner man or our inner woman. One who makes deceptive promises has no welcome before God. This is the one who says, oh yes, I will make you Lord of my life, but has no intention of doing that. Matthew twelve thirty four. Brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. As David's asking the question, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Who can, who can have an audience before him? Who, who can be right in his sight? And as he goes through this list... Maybe in that time, as, as well as it is when I read it, it causes despair, right? Who can fulfill this and still stand before the Lord? Usually when this psalm was read out, it would be the priest, in particular the high priest, who, who, would, who would be going forth with it. And the high priest was the one who had the ability to enter into the presence of the Lord, the, the dwelling presence that was in the Holy of Holies of the temple. They had to tie a rope around his ankle because if he broke anything or if he was impure in any way, he was going to drop dead like that and they had to drag him out. Because if they ran in to go get him, they would die too. There would just be bodies piled up there as everybody tried to run in because God is a holy God and he will not be in the presence of sin. I know my hands aren't always clean. My heart is not always pure. Don't tell my wife this. But I'm a selfish person. She doesn't know that yet. We've only been married 14 years. But the other thing is idolatry. It's so sneaky. It's very subtle. As well as horrendously stubborn to get rid of. Under this list, I fall short. In, in, in myself, I cannot stand before God. There's no way I can stand before God. I can't stand in the presence of God. And if we're all honest, if we're all truthful, none of us can stand. None of us who has lived, none of us who ever will live, except for one man, Jesus. And though the psalmist again 
didn't know that he was writing it at the time. It was something that points forward to God establishing a better covenant. Um, and, and I say that lightly because it's not like his old covenant failed in any way. It, it, it was leading to something. But he established the new covenant through the work and position and person of Christ. Jesus is the one who has clean hands. Jesus is the one with a pure heart. He's never looked to another. He trusted solely in his Father. And he's never sworn deceitfully. Our Lord Jesus can ascend the hill of the Lord. His hands were clean, his heart pure. And in his righteousness, which is given to all who believe, now we can ascend the holy hill because he was able to. We can stand in his holy place because Christ stands in the holy place right now. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be righteous. You cannot work for your righteousness. You cannot ever hope to be righteous. And, and we can get our hands dirty and wash it, and then our hands are, are clean for a while, right? The first time we sinned, we were dirty forever. There was no amount of washing it that would ever cleanse that. We would have to pay for that sin. There's not like, oh, well, I'm going to get myself right, and I'm going to start walking that straight and narrow. Because even if you did that, that one mistake, that one sin, that one rebellion against God disqualified you from being in his presence forever. But our Lord Jesus Christ lived perfectly so that his perfect, righteous, holy covering could be imputed to us. And the condition of that is believing in him. The old covenant, a righteous walk was a precondition for fellowship with God. And in the new covenant, our righteous walk is the result of fellowship with God. Meaning we're not working for relationship, we're working from relationship. Make no mistake though, in both covenants, God remains concerned with the moral conduct of us as men and women. Especially those who identify as His. It says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the hand of God, uh, righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Those who seek after God will be blessed with righteousness. We praise him because we want to seek after him. We praise him because of all that he's done for us and we continue to seek after him. It's a continual seeking and the, and the idea has the element of pursuit. Like we're not just seeking God, like looking to see where he's, we're pursuing the direction that he's going. It indicates something closer than just the presence of God also. Look at what it says there. It says that seeks the face of the God of Jacob. 
See, it's one thing to seek an audience. It's another thing to seek the face. That's a closer, more intimate presence. David compares the seeking to that of Jacob and his match with the Lord. And that story like resonates, that, that encounter with God resonates with my heart. That is the story that, and, and that God brought to my attention and, and in detail that broke my heart and caused me to call out for the Lord. I was running in full-on rebellion. I knew I was. Because my prayer was this, God, you've got to break me because there's no other way I'm coming to you. And he broke me. Everything that I had in my, all, all the little uh, house of cards that I built up, he, he knocked them all down. I was flat on my back. There was nothing else I could do except trust God. You see, Jacob had that same kind of faith. Jacob was wrestling with God. We, we remember the encounter, right? He, he met with the angel of the Lord, which we all know is a, a uh, Christophany in which it's Christ appearing before he was actually uh, incarnate. And so he meets with the angel of the Lord and they begin to wrestle. I don't know if it was ancient Greco wrestling or I don't know if it was jujitsu, but they were wrestling. And, and, and the main thing is that Jacob chose to hold on. We remember that it said that he held on and he says, let me go. It's almost daybreak. I got to go. And he goes, no, not until you bless me. And we go, well, that's weird. And at the end of it, what we read is it says that he won over the Lord. But the angel did what? It touched his hip and it dislocated it. It withered the muscle in his hip. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. But yet it says he won with God. Why did he win? Because he struggled to hold on. He wouldn't let go until he received the blessing from the Lord. That is in direct contradiction to his brother, Esau, who gave his blessing away for soup, for his hunger, for his stomach. So Jacob, he's a guy I can relate to. He was not perfect. He was far from perfect. He, his, his name means deceiver. And so he was deceiving and, and he would scheme and connive and all these things. And, and you read a whole lot about his life and he was doing that the whole time. But he's the Lord's. And now God is referred to as the God of Jacob because Jacob held on to him so tightly, said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. May we hold on to God that tightly that we would worship him and hold on to him that tightly and say, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Notice he didn't say until you fix my life, until you give me everything I want. All he wanted was to know that he had the blessing of the Lord. After Jacob finished his wrestling match, he named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. You know what happens when you stand in the presence of the Lord and you're unworthy? No one can live and stand in the presence of the Lord who is unholy and unworthy. When Moses asked to see the Lord, he said, no one can see my face and live. Yet Jacob says, I saw the face of God and yet lived. 
Worship the King of glory because while no one is worthy to stand in His presence, righteous, He sovereignly through Christ made us worthy as we seek His face. As we hang on to Him and we call out and we say, bless us. And then we worship Him because we receive God's reign. We receive God's reign. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. And who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Again, lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. And who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. Salah. This psalm ends with a repetition. And we all know, or if you don't, this will be something new for you, a new little tidbit when you study your Bible and you come across this. In Hebrew, repetition communicates emphasis. If it repeats, it's important. If it repeats immediately one right after the other, it's very important. And so it says, lift up your heads, you gates, and rise up, ancient doors. It's a call for the city to open. Open and be ready to receive the ark. The ark in ancient Israel, the ark was the mercy seat of God. It sat in the Holy of Holies. That is where God sat. And so whenever the ark was passing around, that was seen as the presence of God. And so as God is on his throne and they're carrying him in, they're saying, open up and be ready to receive the ark. Be ready to receive the Lord. Lift up your heads refers to a practice of making a wider entrance. The, the gates, they had this thing that went over the gate and as uh, large processions went through, depending on how... Um, gaudy, I guess you could say, the, the, the procession was, how high their banners were and all this, they would take off that, that cap. They would take it off to make more room to open. That's what it means to lift up your heads, lift up the head of the gate, possibly even pulling off the gates off their hinges to make the entrance as wide as possible. Lift up your heads could also refer to their headdresses or their helmets. It's a, it's a metaphor. What it means is ready yourself for worship. You lower your head in humility, but you raise your head in rejoicing. You raise your head in praising. Another thing to consider is gates. The gates are at the entrances of places of worship. The reminder of, of the gates is, it, it's a reminder of where they are. It's saying, focus your thoughts, be mindful, be ready to offer up praise. Then the king of glory will come in. That too is also repeated twice. Open wide the entrance, make room, Prepare yourself, and then the king of glory will come in. 
saying, we're not going to try and squeeze the king of glory through a small opening. But only when the opening and the gates have been readied all the way will he come in. When the king of England wishes to enter the city of London through the temple bar, the gate being closed, the herald would demand entrance, saying, Open the gate. From within, a voice would be heard that says, Who's there? The herald would answer, The king of England. All at once, the gates would be opened. And the king would pass. And it would be a joyful reception of all of his people. This, it's an ancient custom that's referred to in this psalm. It's still followed and practiced today, but it happened in this psalm. Ancient rabbinical sources tell us in Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. The first day of the week, as we all know, it's our Sunday. And so putting these facts together, we can safely assume these were the words being recited by the temple priests at the very time Jesus Christ mounted a colt, the foal of a donkey, and ascended on his approach to Jerusalem, according to commentator James Montgomery Boyce. Who is the King of Glory? That question is also posed twice. And both times the short answer is the Lord. All caps. Yahweh. The covenantal God. More specifically, He's the Lord, strong and mighty. And the Lord, mighty in battle. And the second time it says He's the Lord of armies, the King of glory. The idea is plain. It's assumed that when the King of Glory is welcomed with open gates and doors, he's pleased to come in. The King of Glory will meet with man when approached correctly and the doors are open to him. The thought that the doors might be open and he not are, and not enter in, that's not even a possibility in this psalm. You are not going to open up the gates and prepare yourself to welcome the King in and he's going to say, uh, no, no thank you. We have that promise all throughout Scripture. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your mind and your hearts. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Or what Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. interesting that the uh, psalmist ends the psalm with the word Salah. Salah, as we all know, it's it's a reflective pause. I mean, to consider this king of glory receiving those who are unworthy, even to be received by those who are unworthy. What king wants to have a reception of people that are ungodly? Yet our king delights when we, the unworthy, the outcast, the dregs, 
of society cleansed by the blood of Christ receive him. He's pleased by that. G. Campbell Morgan connected Psalm 22, 23, and 24 this way. He said, by our calendars, yesterday he passed through Psalm 22. Today, he is exercising the office of Psalm 23 as our good shepherd leading us through this life. And tomorrow, he will exercise the final authority of Psalm 24 when he comes again. The king of glory shall come in. That was fulfilled when the ark entered into Jerusalem. That was fulfilled when Christ ascended into heaven. When he was resurrected and then he ascended into heaven, it's because he was acceptable. He was able to stand before God. The king of glory shall come in as fulfilled every time one opens their heart to receive Jesus Christ as the king of glory to reign in their life. Why was the gates of Jerusalem addressed twice? We know the king of glory is Jesus Christ. We know that Christ entered in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But the whole city didn't receive him. The psalm may have been sung that day, but they never thought to apply it to him. Instead of receiving him, they rejected him. They sent him to die. He rose the third day. He is the, the, the conquering Lord, the one that wins battles. It's talking about winning battles. He won the victory against Satan, sin, and death. And then he ascended back into heaven. The second address looks forward to the glorious event at the end of the tribulation when Christ again marches to Jerusalem to reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It says, who is the King of glory? And it says the Lord of armies. And the first time he came, and he conquered sin and death. And the second time he comes as the Lord of armies, he comes with all of his saints with him as he puts down every last rebellion against him. And it's going to be a triumphal procession like nothing we've ever seen, witnessed, or ever have heard about before. The people, once startled by his suffering... They're going to stand, lifted open as he enters at the height of his glory. As I said, he comes back with all of his saints that are with him and we can enter with our king at that time. But we have to learn to worship and praise him and receive him as our reigning king now. Though unworthy to stand before him, we must stand before him. We can only do that in Jesus' righteousness. Only do that trusting in Jesus. You see, we realize the fulfillment of this psalm when we open the gates of our hearts to receive our King of glory and his reign. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you
And Father, there's quite a few reflective pauses put in this in this psalm. And Father, may we may we not just read through this psalm real quick, but that we would take that reflective moment, Father God, to really consider. our God who created everything, who stands sovereign. Everything is His. He can do with it as He pleases. What could anyone say or do? Yet in His sovereign choice, we worship, we praise Him. On top of that, he sovereignly chose to send his son to make us worthy, to stand in his presence. Knowing that we're not worthy, yet he allows us in his presence. Lifts my heart to sing and I pray it would lift your heart to sing on those times where this world is against us where everything seems to be going wrong just remember that he made everything right through Christ through his sacrifice he made a way when there was no way and all he asks is that we open our hearts and we receive him in as our reigning king I pray that if there's any that are listening that have not opened their gates, lifted their heads, prepared the reception of Christ as King in their life, I pray that they would do that. That they would know that He's the only one who can make them able to stand in the presence of God, who gives us the right to stand before a righteous and holy God. that we wouldn't take it lightly either that those of us who do know Christ we would continue to seek to come before God come before to be able to stand in his presence asking him to cleanse our hands help us to remove those things that raise up as idols in our life Help us to continue to seek the face of God like Jacob with that earnest desire to hang on and say, I'm not letting go until I know I have the blessing of the Lord. Father, we look forward to that time when your son's coming back. We look forward to that time, but in the here and now, use us, help us to spread and to share so that others would receive you now opening their hearts to receive the King of glory who desires to come in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.